Um, so the message for today uh, is titled The Importance of Genesis. Now, I want to start off with this scripture. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your heart and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you with meekness and, uh, uh, with meekness and fear. And that idea of always be ready to give a defense, it, it means basically that as a Christian, as someone who is representing Christ on earth, we should always be ready to explain to people what our faith is and defend it from people who are misrepresenting it. Has anyone ever known anyone to misrepresent Christianity in a public space or in a conversation or in a family dinner that's about to turn into a family brawl? Of course we have. We've all been in those situations. But the question is, what do you do? Now, in my experience, most Christians won't do much of anything. This is not a dig. This is just a reality. Most people will try to talk and try to be nice about it and try not to cause any waves. But we very rarely will stand up and defend our faith. And by defend, we're not talking, don't be mean. Why can't we all get along? You should be friends. I'm not being mean to you. That's not what I'm talking about when it comes to defend. Defend is a military term. Now, when, when, when the military is not in action, they're ready, but they're typically at rest. But when it comes time to defend, the interesting thing is, for, any, for anyone that's ever had any kind of training or seen any training, there is, a, there is a posture that changes. There is something in the individual that suddenly becomes different. They're not just, even if you think about Roman days with the soldiers, there was a difference between a guy holding a sword and a spear, eh, got this pointy thing, and someone who is ready to defend. When they're ready to defend, all of a sudden, the posture changes. Sword in hand, shield in the front, ready ready to move. They're in a defensive posture. And the person coming at them knows, oh, I may have just made a mistake. So when it comes to defending the church, defending our faith, it's not about just trying to get along with everybody and not be upsetting. It's about changing our spiritual posture so that we are now ready to take on what is coming at us. There's a difference there. And there's a challenge in this that happens in the life of most believers. And we tend to not want to go in this direction. Uh, And I'll explain to you why. It's the same reason why most people don't like going to the gym. Going to the gym makes you feel good. I have a gym membership. How often do you work out? I didn't say I worked out. (laughs) Say I had a gym membership. That should be enough, right? I mean, geez, do I got to do everything? I should get thin just by paying that bill. Nope. You actually have to go do the work. It's a little bit different. So when it comes to our faith, when it comes to growing in our faith, when it comes to being able to defend an argument, there's a job that we have on the back side of it. Now, most of us are familiar with the relational side of our faith. We want to know Jesus and we want to experience Christ. We want to, we want to know him. That's a very important part of our faith. You cannot exist in Christianity without knowing who Christ is. You can know about him, but that doesn't mean you know him. There's a difference. And on the other side of that is the academic world, where you learn about him. Now, it is very important that teachers, leaders, spend and 
significant amount of time doing that theological research and learning about him. That's literally my job, is to learn about Christ and to bring that truth to you. But there's a danger in that. You can actually get to the point where you're so intellectually minded, you're of no heavenly good. Everything becomes an academic argument about whether or not you've conjugated the word, you know, a, a word correctly in a sentence. Oh, great. That's wonderful. How about we just, and people get sick of it. How can we just, can we just love Jesus and love each other and, and leave the rest of this nonsense to, to other people? Does it really matter? You see, you can go wrong on both sides. You can go hard onto the intellectual side and be unapproachable or completely unspiritual in your life. And you can be so spiritually minded, you have no intellectual capabilities whatsoever. And it's dangerous on both sides. You got to find someplace in the middle where you have an understanding of your faith and you can argue your faith, but at the same time, you can also connect with God and people on a spiritual level, on an emotional level, on a relational level. Both of them have to exist. And this is actually quite challenging in our life because we live in a time and place where a lot of the reasons why Christians tend to not want to get into that defensive posture is because we live in a highly educated time of, the, time of, uh, 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 of history. So I did a little research this morning. I was curious as to what was the computing capability of the lunar module, the thing NASA built to take three guys to the moon and land and then come back. How much computing capability did that monstrous machine have compared to things today? Here's what I found out. There is more capability on my phone by 65 million times. My phone is, and I, I didn't come up with this number, okay? This was, this was on different websites that have compared this. 65 million times more capable than the lunar module. And they didn't have the internet. You got information coming out of your ears, there's so much information available to us today. We typically don't even know what to do with it. We don't even look things up anymore. We don't. How many of you have all of your friends' phone numbers memorized? Yeah. Now, how many of you who have been around a little longer still remember your phone number from when you were a kid? Yeah, okay, yeah. You see? Because you had to. You had to. Now you're just like, Siri, call... You know, Wanted to make sure. Let me think about that. You don't have any friends. What? (laughs) There's so much available to us. We have a tendency of not actually memorizing things. Why memorize scripture? I'll just look it up. I'll Google it. You know, I got to type in two words from a from a, a, a one sentence of scripture that I don't remember the whole sentence, and Google will try to find it for me. So we become kind of lazy in this process. And the problem is, the atheists in our life have not. They have become quite aggressive. To the point where if you spend three or four minutes online, and I really mean three or four minutes, you will find tens of thousands of articles about how dumb Christianity is, about how ridiculous the Bible is. You'll find videos, you'll find classes uh, about you know, how, to, how to mix Christianity with other faiths. I actually got an article or an invitation sent to me by uh, by seminary.com asking me 
to attend their seminary class on how to integrate the Enneagram into your preaching. The Enneagram is a pagan process. It is literally a derivation of witchcraft. And I have, I've I've done the research on this. People think, oh, it's centuries old. No, it's not. It was actually created in the 1960s by a guy named Claudio Naranjo, who came up with what are called the Enneotypes through a process called automatic writing, which is a version of allowing any spirit, demonic spirit, into you to write through you. It's a real thing. And Christians, they're putting this into seminary programs. And people are going, it's so brave. No, being dumb isn't brave. It's just dumb. But there are so many people who will defend that before they can defend the inerrancy of Scripture. It's amazing to see it. So we have this monstrous machine that we are kind of trying to fight against. So a question came to my mind. How do we fight a misinformation machine the size of the Internet? It's not easy. How do you how do you fight that? We can't know everything that's out there, and there's some really wild stuff that's out there. The only answer that I really came up with is on purpose. You fight it on purpose. It will not happen accidentally. It's like learning math. You can fall asleep on the textbook. You're not going to learn it through osmosis. It's just, it's not, you have to actually do it on purpose. Anything that we become good at, anything that we develop a skill at, we develop that skill on purpose by spending time, resources, energy to commit ourselves to this process. And as Christians, this is becoming more and more important today. It is literally about committing yourself to a lifetime of living, learning, and sharing. Living, learning, and sharing. Because if there's something that you learn that you don't live, then you don't mean it. And if there's something that you've learned and that you've started to live, but you refuse to share it, then what's the point? You see, when it comes to the aspects of our faith, we're supposed to learn it and we're supposed to live it because we believe it and we're supposed to share it because it's true. This is, this is what God has called us to do. So we have to integrate this into our life. And this is a life long pursuit. And the process of this, this that I have dedicated a substantial part of my life to is, is called apologetics. This is not an apologetics class tonight, uh, today, so uh, I'm not going to get too much into that. But essentially, apologetics is this. It's the application of logical thought and consistent reasoning within an argument. That's all it is. It's learning how to trace your thoughts into a, into a process that's actually logical and, a, and you have the ability to explain it. There's a lot of people who really want to be able to defend things, but they don't know how. People have questions. You don't have ability to answer them. The foundations of this, pro- of this process is not about the accumulation of knowledge. It's about the application of knowledge. Can I say that again? Our faith and our ability to share is not about the accumulation of knowledge. It's about the application of knowledge. See, wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. You can have a very little bit of knowledge, but when you apply it correctly, you look brilliant. And you can have a lot of knowledge, and when you apply it incorrectly, you look like a moron. Let me give you an example. Almost anyone who comes out of college with a degree that they are convinced has certified them as a master in this subject. 
Yay. Here's something that I found really interesting. I was in the hospital with my dad after he had a stroke, and we were at University Hospital, and he was, he was up there, and he had to have, his, he had to have a, a blood draw before they uh, were going to release him. I was there to take him to, back to a Samaritan Hospital from university to do some rehab. So he had to have some, some blood drawn. So this tiny little phlebotomist, a cute little, first day, yay! You're like my third patient. She came in, she actually said that. My dad didn't care because she was cute. You know, she had a little cute little nurse outfit on. She came in. Seven jabs later, he was like, could you put, because it wasn't just like jab. It was like jab, move around, you know. And he's, ah, could you please call somebody else? She's like, well, okay. So she puts, she gets, 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 you know, on the call. She had just finished her program. She's certified an expert. Okay. In walks this lady who I'm relatively certain was about a hundred years old. Not happy to be there. Comes in, I don't know what, I have shown you this. You can imagine all the things that she says, I have shown you how to do this a thousand times. She grabs a little thing, grabs a needle, in about eight seconds she had the blood drawn and he didn't even know what happened. Knowledge versus wisdom. Who do you want running a needle through your arm? <laughs> I want the grumpy old lady. I'm just saying that's, that's who I want, okay? I don't need to be like, sorry, I hit a bone, you know? <laughs> it's like, no, that's too deep, okay? Come on. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Our faith is kind of the same thing. Knowledge is only as useful as its application. So we need to understand how to apply these things. And so today, what, what I'm, I'm kind of getting to is the importance of Genesis. The book of Genesis, and more importantly, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, are some of the most avoided texts in all of Scripture. Pastors will go out of their way to avoid the first 11 chapters of Genesis, because in, in Genesis chapter 12, you start with Abraham. Whew, okay, good. Now, you see, you're starting with real history. Abraham, the stuff before that, you know, metaphor, allegory, none of it was really real. God didn't mean it. It was all made up. Well, no. If Genesis is narrative history, if it's real history, then it's all history, right? And unfortunately, our Bible starts with a Hebrew word, bereshit, which means in the beginning. Also translated, when things started. Bereshit bala Elohim. In the beginning, when things started, God created the heavens and the earth. It did not say, in the beginning, there was a large bang, and God, being a spirit, was very surprised and curious and came to see what the bang was about and thought, this would be fun to mess with. Let's make people. But let's do it over billions of years. Because I'm patient. So that's not what it says. It says created, and created is a willful act. It has intent, purpose. Our Bible begins there. So when it comes to creation, creation apologetics is a process of thought regarding the natural world that begins with the authority and the reliability of God's word. And it assumes that we should be able to verify the historical claims made in the Bible. When the Bible says, I created all things, We should be able to see that in science because God created science. 
when the Bible says, I flooded the entire earth, the entire earth, not a part of it, not a local flood, the entire earth, we should be able to see that in the natural world. And what I'm going to show you in the weeks ahead is that you can. And the cool thing is, a huge portion of the scientific community is actually leaving Darwinism. There's actually a movement in the scientific community. It's called the Descent from Darwinism, where scientists are saying, they're not saying that we need to embrace the Bible. They're just saying that Darwinism is no longer tenable as a realistic uh, uh, theory about the origin of life because science has shown it to be absolutely impossible. It just can't happen on its own. And people are going, yes. But there's still a lot of people in the scientific community digging their heels in because they know there are only two options. You're either an accident or you're intentional. And if you are the product of intent, that means there's a mind behind your creation. And if there's a mind behind our creation, we may be beholden to that creator. Why, yes, we are. We're going to look into that down the road. So here's a question for you. What is currently the fastest growing belief system in the world? Scientific atheism. It is not the Muslim faith. Scientific atheism. People are leaving all faiths from all over the world for the same reasons. And it's basically Darwinism. Science textbooks have pushed for decades the idea that you are nothing more than a cosmic accident. You are complicated pond scum. You have no purpose in life. You have no meaning in life. You came from nothing. You're going to nothing. All you have is what's here. Enjoy it while you can. Stop putting yourself into, sub, into servitude to these ideological religions that just want to beat you down and keep you from finding your true self. Because who knows? You might actually be a hamster trapped in a human's body. Or a cat. Or a giraffe. Look it up online. It's endless. I'm a human male trapped in a human male's body. Only half of it showed up. It's just the way it works. You know, I did this thing earlier this week, and it was really neat, but that was as high as I could get it up on the wall. Got up on a step stool, air got thin, got dizzy, just couldn't do it anymore. You know, so... Scientific atheism or naturalism is basically it's the fastest growing belief system in the world. And it is a belief that the physical world is all there is. That exclusively natural processes have to explain everything. There is nothing that can be explained through a supernatural process. It has to be something that you can observe and test and repeat. That is it. That is all there exists in the world. And people are leaving the Christian faith faster than any other religious group. And the reason is we are the only faith in existence that starts with the belief that God created everything, everything. And so when you're taught from a very early age that, no, you get a guy in a lab coat telling you that you actually just came, you know, from nothing, but your parents and your Sunday school teacher are telling you that God created everything, just trust in Jesus. You don't have to listen to that science stuff. No, it's fine. I mean, they create medicine and computers and all this other stuff, but it's fine. Don't worry about that. They seem to have answers, and we seem to be left with questions. So let me show you how this has played out over, say, the last 20 years. 
How many of you remember the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye? I just dated myself. Wow, that's awesome. So back when I became a Christian, every girl in the world basically read that book. I, I'm not, nope, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. I'm waiting for my husband. This, Josh Harris is the author. He became a pastor. He's now an atheist. I don't know why he's an atheist. Darwinian evolution, scientific atheism eroded his faith over the years because what he found was that the people that he was associating with didn't have answers to questions like, how do you explain cancer? How do you explain the difficulty in the world? How do you explain this? How do you explain that? You know, how about this one? John Steingard, former frontman and lead guitarist for the Christian band Hawk Nelson. Some of the songs that they sing are still sung in churches today. Uh, he stepped away from his faith. You want to know why? Scientific atheism. Eroded his faith over years. He admits to being on stage leading people in worship as an atheist. But he did it because he didn't know, didn't know what else to do, and that was his job. Remember this band, Gunger, husband and wife team, they're worship leaders. They were. Stepped away from their faith. Want to know why? Scientific atheism eroded their faith. They went to their leaders with questions. Their leaders didn't have questions. Their leaders, leaders gave them a wonderful Christian answer. Just trust in Jesus. They didn't give them answers to these questions. This is Bart Campolo. He's the pastor, he, he, former pastor and son of famous preacher Tony Campolo. He's now a secular humanist, which might as well just be an atheist. He is actually committed. He travels the world trying to pull people out of the church. He admits this. That is his goal, is to get people away from Christianity. His father pastors a huge church and has begun to move over to his son's camp to the point where he's embracing things like homosexuality openly. Because, you know, God's, God's all loving. This is, the prog- this is the process that people go through before they finally step away from their faith altogether. Now, if you're familiar with John Piper, this is Abraham Piper, his son. Abraham Piper has over a million followers on his, on his YouTube channel where he works tirelessly to bring people away from the church and the false teachings of people like his dad. Why did he leave? Scientific atheism. It only took a couple of college classes to get him away from the faith for evolutionary biology. Now, are you familiar with this guy, Charles Templeton? Charles Templeton, if you notice, at the bottom, the guy uh, down here on the right side in the right corner, that's Billy Graham. Charles Templeton and Billy Graham began evangelizing at the same time. They were on the same team. They worked together. Now, here's the cool part if you look into this. It was believed by those who were around him that Charles Templeton was going to be the important one. Because he was a fireball preacher. Led tens of thousands of people to Christ. Started building this ministry, people. I mean, he was he was in more demand than Billy Graham. Billy Graham was pretty good, but Charles Temple, man, people wanted him. 
He wanted to increase his ability to reach higher, more highly educated people. So he wanted to go back to school and get a higher, get, get, get a more advanced degree. So if I'm not mistaken, I think he went to, uh, to um, uh, Princeton, I think. I might have that one wrong. I apologize. It took one class in evolutionary biology for him to begin questioning his faith. Within a couple of years after coming back onto the ministry uh, circuit, he stepped away from his faith into atheism. Here's a quote from Charles Templeton shortly after that. Should one continue to base one's life on a system of belief that for all its occasional wisdom and frequent beauty is demonstrably untrue? He came to the conclusion that Christianity was completely untrue and false at the very core because we came from monkeys. That's all it took for this person that they thought was going to blow Billy Graham out of the water. It's amazing. Later in life, he's since gone on to be with the Lord. uh, He's gone on to stand before the Lord. We'll leave the rest of it uh, to your imagination. He wrote this book, Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. He was heralded by the atheist community as like one of their chief evangelists. Travel the world to try to pull people out of the church. All based around one simple belief that we are a cosmic accident. We're here by chance. And because we're here by chance, we can't have a purpose. Because we can't have a purpose, life has no value other than what you bring to it. So if we're going to die and go nowhere, why am I going to waste my time sitting in a church while I'm still alive? I got things to do, man. I got places to go. I got things I want to see. One of the difficulties is that the atheist community is more than willing to put forward what they consider to be answers to life's origin, its meaning, morality, and destiny. They claim to have the answers to that. And in my experience, not all Christians, but a huge majority of Bible-believing Christians can't answer those four questions. What happens after I die? We love that one. Oh, we go to heaven if you know Jesus. Okay, that's great. How do I find the purpose in my life? Well, you've got to give your life to Jesus. Okay, that's almost a good answer. How do I know the difference between right and wrong? Well, we do what the Bible says. Well, okay, I can probably do that. Well, how did I come from? Where did life come from? Oh, well, um, if I say God created, I'm going to look like a science denier. So I'm going to say God used evolution wait a minute. Are you saying the beginning part of the book that you have put your entire life into that says God created, you're saying that that's a lie, that that's mistaken, that that's not true, and you expect me to believe the rest? So they turn around and they go someplace else. I've seen it over and over and over and over. So there are two sides to this argument. There's the Darwinian paradigm that says the spontaneous generation of all life from a single common ancestor via undirected mutation and natural selection. That sounds so scientific and boring. I fell asleep reading it. That you are a 
result of a cosmic accident. Here's the logical conclusion to that argument. Life has no meaning. It has no purpose. It has no value outside of what you bring to the collective good and uh, no hope of anything after death. That's so joyful, isn't it? I mean, that just makes me feel good about myself. Now, I want you to think about something. When people talk about being pro-life or pro-choice, we tend to, in the church, think that pro-choice people are just evil. There's evil people. People like, like Hitler, they're just evil people. People like Stalin and Mao, these people who murdered millions of people, they're just evil people. Here's something you probably need to understand. Stalin was an evolutionist. He was a Darwinist, committed Darwinist. Hitler was a committed Darwinist. Margaret Sanger, creator of Planned Parenthood, committed Darwinist. She believed in the process of eugenics, means engineering the human race. Their basic idea was this. Because life has no value on its own other than what you bring to the collective, then unwanted kids are just attacks on the, on the, 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 uh, the resources of the collective. So why would you want unwanted children who are just going to bring the system down, if you get rid of them now, then everybody else has a better life. Because those kids, whether they live a full life, are going nowhere into darkness anyway. Why don't we just send them there now and make everything easier on everybody else? That's the mindset. Came from nothing, going to nothing means nothing. Get rid of spare cats, get rid of spare kids. It's not evil. It's a viewpoint that leads you to an evil action. That's the reality. You're never going to change the people's mind until you get them to the point where they realize life has value. And life only has value if it has purpose. It only has purpose if you were created for a reason. The Genesis paradigm tells us that the universe and everything in it was brought into existence through the intentional will of our creator God as outlined in the first chapters of the book of Genesis. All life has meaning, has purpose, has individual value, and has hope for, return, hope for eternity because of our creator. Because we were created with purpose, our life has purpose, our destiny has purpose. Forever is a real thing. We will be there we give our life over to Christ. And it comes down to two very simple choices. We either base our life around this, the word of God, as true from beginning to end, or we base our life around the word of men. That life is just a cosmic accident, and the best thing this book will do is give you some moral guidance on how to live a good life. Both of these choices have profound implications. But for the Christian, it comes down to a very, very simple question. Can I trust the Bible? Can you trust the Bible? I meet more people that have this question. I don't know if I can trust the Bible. I just just don't know. Why don't you know if you can trust the Bible? Because I believe in science. So do I. A young earth creationist. I believe in science. But science tells me this. Now, hold on. Is it the science textbook in the public school system that's telling you this? 
Or is science telling you this? Do all scientists agree on this? Well, don't they? No, actually they don't. In far greater numbers than most people realize. But there is an organization in our country called the National Academy of Science. They are the only ones that allow scientific information to get to your kids. And they are all 100% committed to scientific atheism. Committed to scientific atheism. There is not a person in that organization that is a Bible-believing Christian. Not one. This is their manual on how to deal with creationism. This entire book, which is printed from their website, discusses how to get creationism out of the classroom and get evolution into the minds of the, of the kids so that we can change the next generation. It's how to get Christianity out of the way. And yes, if anyone wants to read it, I can get you a copy. But now let's, let's ask a simple question. Do you have to believe in creation to be saved? Well, naturally, if you go to Romans 10, 9, it says, um, um, oh, hey, it says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe that God raised him from the dead, raised him from the grave, a literal six-day creation, and the flood of Noah's day. That's in the Bible, right? No, that's not. See, the belief in creation is not necessary for salvation, but let me ask you something. If you can't believe the first chapter of the Bible, why would you believe the rest? Why would you believe your destination in heaven if you can't believe where you came from? This is the argument that people get into pretty consistently. And here's what happens with the church. I'm going to show you a video clip from Andy Stanley, and I want you to really listen to what he's doing. This is son of Charles Stanley. Charles Stanley, by the way, is moving in this direction and has done so publicly, supporting his son and his views. And I'll show you, share you some of those other views, but I want you to see, because he's going to show you where his faith in the Bible began to erode, and it was not the church. I think that we have done previous generations, especially of children and high school students, a terrible disservice by the way we talk about the Bible. I remember my freshman English class at Georgia State University. We were talking about literature. It was a a literature class, and one of the pieces of literature was the Bible. And my teacher was not an anti-religious person, but began to talk about the myth, the creation myth, other creation myths. And without meaning to, began to slowly dismantle the faith of every single person in there who had grown up in church. When she was finished, all of us were convinced that there are many creation myths. The story of Adam and Eve is a creation myth. It's one of many. Let's move on to the next topic. Well, because of the way the scripture had been presented to me and probably everybody in that class, it's a house of cards. So as soon as you pull out one piece of the Bible to say, this is a myth, well then immediately it's like, well, what else in there? Is myth. Mm-hmm. The foundation of our faith is not the scripture. The foundation of our faith is not the infallibility of the Bible. The foundation of our faith is something that happened in history. And the issue is always, who is Jesus? That's always the issue. The scripture is simply a collection of ancient documents that tells us that story. So when we... Mm-hmm. 
The foundation of our faith is not the scriptures. Wow. He has one of the largest churches in the South. He travels and speaks all over the world. And since that video, here are some of the things that he has preached about in his messages. Excuse me. He denies the authority of Scripture as just a collection of documents. He denies the creation account in Genesis as literally made up or stolen from other, uh, other uh, societies and, and then turned into what it is today. He claims that the Ten Commandments are not for today because they're not about you. He openly encourages Christians to stop reading and disconnect themselves from the Old Testament teachings because they're not about you. And if you follow the Old Testament teachings on morality, about family, about society, they make it too hard. These are his own words, too hard for people to come to Christ. This is one of the most popular preachers in the world today telling you that the Bible is fiction. That it's not about you. All you need to know is who Jesus is. Now let me ask the obvious question. How do we know who Jesus is? How do we know that he was born in Bethlehem? How do we know when he was born? How do we know that he was born of a virgin? How do we know that he was in Bethlehem because of a, because of a census? How do we know that he lived and that he taught? How do we know that he died and was crucified and rose again? Where do we get this elusive information that he seems to think is not found in the Bible? We get it from the Bible! He's telling us that we can't trust this book that tells us all about the person that he says we should trust. And he thinks that's a logical argument. You need to know about Jesus. The Bible is the only source in the world, by the way, that tells you about Jesus, but you can't trust it. But you need to trust Jesus. Way to go, Andy. It's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. But this is where the church is going. You see other ministers talking about the same thing. That you don't need to li- to do that whole Bible reading study thing. Just listen to what I'm telling you. And I'm reminded of a passage of scripture that in the end days, people will stop listening to sound doctrine. And they will, they will bring for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears. Tell them what they want to hear. Tell them that everyone's going to heaven because everyone is loved. Telling you stupid things like you can get saved after you die. The level of hatred towards God's word seems to be unstoppable when it comes to a lot of the pulpits in our country today. And what I've found is that in almost every case, it starts in the same place. Genesis 1, 1 is a lie. I have not found an exception to this. I'm sure there probably is, but in my experience, I have not found an exception to this. I have never found someone who has abandoned their faith that has actually held on to the doctrine of creation. It's amazing to see how strong that reality is. 
Because if I am created, then I'm created for a purpose. Listen to this quote from a famous atheist, Richard Dawkins. He says, getting religious people to deny any form of supernatural creation and embrace evolution is the first step in getting them to walk away from their religious views, uh, their religious beliefs altogether. The first step in turning a Christian into an atheist is getting them to deny any form of supernatural creation. He's right. About 20 years ago, an organization did a study that showed about, actually now it's about 30 years ago, that about 75% of young people were leaving the church within a couple years of graduation. What we've discovered now is that that number is about 88%. Should think about this, about 88%, 9 out of 10 kids will walk away from Christianity within a couple of years of graduating high school. It was assumed that those kids were walking away because of those evil colleges full of those evil liberal liberal professors were turning the kids against us. Turns out that's not the case. Answers in Genesis funded another study where they did a little bit more work. They focused on 20-somethings who had left the church. But here's the thing about those 20-somethings. They had to have been raised in an evangelical church, churches that were preaching the Bible, Okay? Here's the top 10 reasons why these people had left the church. One, they couldn't find their denomination. What a cop-out that is. Give me a break. The Bible is no longer relevant to life. This was their belief. God would not condemn people to hell. The church is not relevant to personal growth. It's too far. <laughs> so, so wait a second. You abandoned your faith because the church is too far away. Do they know that we have these things called automobiles now? I mean, nowadays, maybe that's right because, you know, gas is too expensive. I'm sure that would be another one here. But you can also, you know, watch online. You can do all kinds of different things. How about this one? There's too many self-righteous people in the church. Yes, like the person making that claim. The church is too political. Uh, okay, so uh, whatever. Uh, the hypocrisy of leaders. You've heard me talk on that one quite a, quite a bit. I don't think we have to go there. Uh, legalism. Now, one of the funny things that I found is for a lot of people, legalism is simply another way of saying standards. The church has standards that I'm supposed to live by. Yeah, um, that's called faith. I'm just, just saying. And my favorite one, boring services. <laughs> What do you want? You're a circus act? you jugglers? I mean, what do I got to do? Stand up here and juggle, juggle chainsaws while I'm giving you a sermon? I mean, really, what's got to happen? I would only do it for one Sunday, and next Sunday I wouldn't be playing guitar because I wouldn't have hands. Just two little nubs. No. Now, the thing that jumped out during the survey, which they actually drilled down more on, was the disregard for the authority of God's word. And so the question was asked, when did you first begin to doubt the Bible? When did you first begin to doubt the Bible? How many of you think it was college? High school? Check this out. 39.8% said middle school. 
You know what they start teaching you in middle school? Evolutionary biology. It's not biology. It's evolutionary biology. Look it up in your kids' textbooks next time you see it. 43.7% said high school when you start getting into more advanced forms of uh, forms of evolution and only 10% said college. So I want you to think about something. Nine out of 10 kids who leave the church within a few years of, of graduating high school left the church while they were still in the church. They left the church while they were, st- they were still in church. They left the church while they were in youth group. They left the church while they were in the kids program. They left the church while they were singing or playing on the worship team. They left the church before they left the church. Please hear this for what it's intended. Because mom and dad dropped the ball. That's the crux of it. It is not up to the church to train your child as a Christian. Can you hear me? Do not leave it to our kids program, which is phenomenal, to train your children. 12 years out of the first 18 years of their life, five days a week for almost 200 days a year, your kids are in the public school system learning lies about where they came from and what life means, and you expect us to change that in 45 minutes on a Sunday morning. You can't do that. You have to take control of the situation and have answers. You should always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. 